The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Please stand with me as I read from God's Word. I'll be reading Mark chapter 8 starting in verse 27, all the way to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I would encourage you, just uh, just thinking about this announcement here, to just be praying for Rebecca down in uh, the, the Dominican Republic as uh, they have this opportunity. I don't know if you know this or not, but according to the International Mission Board, which is the missions arm of the denomination that we associate with, those who are deaf constitute the fourth largest group of unreached people groups in the world. Um, And so there's just very, 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 very little work that's actually taking place among those who are deaf. And so what we have is a phenomenal opportunity to be the prayer support for um, Rebecca and the others that will be doing um, sign language and presenting the gospel to a people who are just largely overlooked when it comes to the things of Christ. So my encouragement to you would be if out of any of those three... um, prayer categories this morning, that global one, as we leave today, just tuck that one away into the back of your mind and be praying that there would be spirit-led words. Their words are going to be through their hands, but spirit-led words, but also spirit-filled boldness in sharing the gospel with them, okay? 
Well, as you just heard this morning, um, we are continuing our track in the Gospel of Mark. Um, If you've ever been uh, mountain climbing or you've ever just gone on a hike, that kind of thing, um, what usually happens is there's a hill that sometimes you have to walk up. So you're walking up a hill. You sort of come to that place where you're at sort of the peak, the climax, the, the tippy top of that hill. And what you can do is survey the land around you. And then what you do is you begin to march down the backside of that hill. And as you march down the backside of the hill, maybe you might pause along the way. Maybe you might stop and take in some of the scenery but we, most of us, I would argue, have some sort of category in the back of our mind of what it looks like to climb a hill, go up, find a peak, survey the landscape, and then to begin to go down the backside of the hill. Well, as we turn our attention to this text in front of us, this really, that sort of hiking idea is exactly what's going on in Mark's gospel right now, where we're at. We've been saying this over and over and over again. Basically, Mark's gospel divides in half. Chapters 1 through 8 is answering the question, who is Jesus? Chapters 9 through 16 answers the question, what did he come to do? And all of it climbs up and meets that sort of peak where Peter finally confesses, this is who you are. You are the Christ. So we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, climbing the hill. We've finally come to the mountaintop, so to speak. Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, that's exactly right. And what you need to know is that I am the Christ who came to suffer and die and rise again. And so now that we're at the peak, what we're going to do is crest that peak and begin to go down the backside of the hill, so to speak, in Mark's gospel, chapters 9 through 16, but just as if you were going on a hike and making your way through um, a mountain or a, or, a, or a pathway, hiking, you might stop and pause along the way to survey the landscape around you, Mark is going to do this very thing on the backside of the mountain. And what he's going to do is he's going to cause us to pause and consider the idea of discipleship. There's a big sub-theme running through the gospel of Mark, and it's this idea of because Jesus is the Christ, because he is the one who came to die and rise again so that we could have life, the question is, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to respond to that language? How are you going to respond to those realities? And what we find in chapters 9 and 10 is that Mark lingers on this as he takes us on a journey towards Jerusalem where Jesus is going to ultimately give his life as a ransom for many. And so along the way, what we're going to do is just pause and ask the question a handful of times over the coming weeks. But today we're going to specifically ask the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? So let's pray. And we'll turn our attention to the text, okay? God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks, and we ask that you would speak this morning. You are not silent this morning because you have spoken to us through your word, and I'm asking by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would speak, that you would fill us this morning, tune our hearts and our minds to hear you, sharpen our minds to think, awaken us from lazy stupors, cause our hearts to burn within us, turn our attention to you. There's no greater question that we could possibly wrestle with is this idea of what is a Christian? What is a disciple? What does a follower of Jesus look like according to the Bible? And Jesus is going to answer this very, very question this morning. Help us to hear. 
It's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was in October of 1978 that the piano man himself, Billy Joel, started cranking out a tune. And it's a, a tune that would eventually become one of his more popular songs, maybe one of the, maybe his most popular song. It was a song titled, My Life. And if you turned on the radio and tuned in to this song, what you would hear Billy Joel singing in the chorus is this. I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life and leave me alone. See, when you step back from this song and you take it as a whole, what you find is that Joel is supporting, championing this idea that my life is my life. Emphasis on the word my My life is not your life. My life is not anybody's life. In the words of the poet William Ernest Henley, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. My life is mine to do with as I see fit. Rights belong to me. Privileges belong to me. Decisions for me rest with me. And if you don't like this, then in the words of Billy Joel, you can just leave me alone. Now, the problem with this philosophy of life is that it stands in stark contrast to the words of Jesus when he begins to explain what it means to follow him as the king. You see, the biblical picture of discipleship has fallen on hard times because when it comes to following King Jesus, many people import this Billy Joel definition of discipleship into what it means to follow Jesus. Hey, Jesus, it's great that you saved me. Hey, thanks for the cross. But when it comes to day in, day out, normal Christianity, my life is my life. You might be my savior. You might even be Lord of some of these areas, but I'm going to make sure you are not Lord over all of my life. My life, there's areas of my life that are mine, and I will not submit them to the Lordship of Jesus. And what we're going to find this morning is that if we find ourselves in that place, then our definition of what it means to be a disciple does not line up with the definition of what discipleship is, what followership is, what it means to be a Christian is found here in the words of Christ. You see, as we've just said, Mark has been driving home the point that Jesus is the Christ. He has been showing us that he's not just any Christ. He's the Christ who must suffer and die. So when Mark connects these two truths together, he does so so that you and I would actually come to the place here at the end of Mark chapter 8 and ask ourselves the question, because Jesus is the Christ, because he must suffer and die, how is my life supposed to be different now that I know who Jesus is and why he came to suffer and die? In other words, we are meant right now, as we've crested over the peak of the mountain and we begin to make our way down the backside of Mark's gospel, we're supposed to stop and ask the question, so what? Like, why should I even care? What impact is this reality that Jesus is the Christ who came to suffer? And I, what is this supposed to have on me? What does Jesus expect from me as the Christ who came to suffer and die? And in the answer to this question, 
Mark tells us that these two truths are meant to turn our life upside down because they have everything to do with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus is the Christ who must suffer and die, he immediately begins to explain that the king who must die on a cross has followers who must die to self. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what King Jesus expects from anyone who would come after him. In other words, as Jesus turns to connect the implications of his suffering and death to those who follow him, the topic of discipleship, he simply begins to explain this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This isn't varsity level Christianity. This isn't for the 12 apostles, Christianity, those who are going to be carried along by the Holy Spirit, give us the New Testament. This isn't something unique for them. Notice in verse 34, and calling the crowd along with the disciples. Jesus begins to unpack, listen, this isn't radical Christianity for those rare, rarefied breed, those rarefied few who are just going to be super, super, super serious about Jesus. He says, this is just what it means. This is normal, average, everyday followers of me it looks like these things this is what it means to be a, a Christian if you want to put this into the form of a, of a question we can just ask this so what does it mean to be a Christian to be a disciple to be a follower and it's as if the Bible grows arms itself and says the answer to this question is right here if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you must look to this text. The answer is right here. This is what it looks like. This is the picture of what normal Christianity is meant to look like. So as we turn our attention to these verses, verses 34 specifically, through verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 9, I want us to prime the pump of application of where we're going to go in the end. I want you guys to think this morning as we work through these verses, knowing that the overarching question is, what is a Christian? I want us to think through these verses and ask ourselves, does my Christianity line up with what Jesus is saying here in these verses? Does my discipleship look like what Jesus says discipleship is supposed to look like? Because we're going to circle back around to this idea as we take a gander at the words of Christ. So we have the question, what is a Christian? And notice that Jesus begins to answer this question as he turns us to verse 34. And starting in verse 34, the first answer he gives us is this, that a Christian is someone who must die to self. A Christian is someone who must die to self. Look in your copy of Scripture. It's just as plain as day there in verse 34. Mark says that, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus says to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him, three things, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So notice that Jesus in these this verse, giving out these three things, what he's doing is he's just laying out the basics of what it means to be a Christian. 
The essence of the normal Christian life requires these three essentials. Denying self, taking up cross, and following Jesus in this way. The language of discipleship is ultimately the language of self-denial. At the very core of what it means to follow Jesus is to see that Jesus is Lord. And by necessity, this means that I am not the Lord. He is the Lord of my life. I am no longer the Lord of my life. I'm not the one wearing the crown. I'm not the one sitting on the throne of my heart. Whatever language you want to do, it's this ultimate confession of I rightly recognize that this one, this king, the Lord, the creator, he is the one who has full and absolute rights to my life. And my response to him is to deny self, take up cross, and follow him in this way. See, the call to follow Jesus is the call to put the self-centered life to death. This is what Jesus is driving at when he says normal Christianity looks like taking up your cross and following me. In Jesus' day, the imagery of crucifixion meant only one thing. It was normal procedure for the condemned person to carry the crossbeam of their cross from the place of judgment to their place of execution. So to see someone carrying their cross meant this was a one-way trip for this person. Their former way of life was done. There was no hope of going back to the way things were. So if you were a first-century Palestinian Jew and you saw somebody carrying this large chunk right here on their shoulders making their way as they're being mocked and jeered and walking with this thing, everyone knows this is a one-way ticket. This cat ain't coming back. He's not going and going to experience something and come back from it. He is going to die. Execution is what he has. His former way of life is done. There's no going back to what he formerly knew. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, what he's saying is, when you come and bow your knee before me as the king, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, when you find salvation in him, it is as though we take that cross beam, put it on and say, old self, we ain't going back. Old self, you are dead. My rights and my privileges, everything I was fighting for before Christ, they are put into the grave. I've been raised to newness of life. I am a crucified man. I am a crucified woman. Jesus is my Lord. That's what it means to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. You see, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be willing to pick up that cross beam. To say goodbye to your former self. And to follow a crucified king. This is just who a Christian is. A Christian is someone who lives totally abandoned to Jesus because they have counted the cost of discipleship. You go into Matthew chapter 10, you find Jesus unpacking this idea in a little bit more detail. Where he says, listen, talking to his disciples, what you got to know is this, that a disciple is not above the teacher. A disciple is not above the teacher. A servant is not above his master. A crucified 
disciple that follows Jesus knows, Jesus says, that if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, it's a word we don't hear a lot in the scriptures, but Beelzebul was a name ascribed to Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. Jesus says, listen, if people are so willing to look at me and basically say, I am satanic, and they're going to come after me in this way, then how much more will they malign those of his household? They know that following Jesus, this disciple who takes up their cross and follows Jesus, they know that following Jesus means we will share in his sufferings. But this person who follows Jesus in this way also ultimately understands that this way of the cross is momentary compared to the eternal glory at the end. They grasp that this cross beam carrying, it's going to be short. It's going to be hard. We're going to share in his sufferings. If Jesus was mocked and reviled and threatened and ultimately killed, Jesus says, you got to know it's coming to you. To follow a Christ is to be a Christian, a Christian. It's to mimic the one you're following. And if we follow Christ who is crucified, he says, it's coming. You got to understand this. But know that the suffering is momentary compared to the eternal reward that is coming. So Jesus tells us that a Christian is someone who counts the cost and dies to self. But he moves on. He also shows us this other truth that a Christian is someone who sees death as reward. Someone who sees death as reward. Look in your copy of Scripture, verses 35 through 37. Notice what Mark records as he continues recording the words of Jesus. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. He's giving us a paradox here. Whoever would save his life, this is the one who's going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, this is the person who's actually going to save it. Then he poses these two questions. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And so as Jesus continues to unpack what it means to follow him as a disciple, to be a Christian, he shifts to a paradox that turns the idea of saving and losing on its head. It's just right there in the text. He says, if you save or treasure your life in such a way where you treasure yourself above and beyond all other things, this is a surefire way to lose your life in the end. The one who plays it safe and considers his existence more important than Jesus will most assuredly lose Jesus in the end, lose eternal life in the end, because you loved yourself more than you loved Christ. But in contrast, Jesus says the one who loses his life for my sake, the one who loses his life for the sake of the gospel will actually save it. Now, salvation, according to the New Testament, is undoubtedly all of grace. 
It is offered freely in the gospel to anyone who turns to Christ and confesses their need for the forgiveness of their sin. The Apostle Paul drives this point home when he says, You are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Paul, the rest of the New Testament, says you don't earn salvation by works. Salvation comes as the free gift of God, saved by grace through faith. But for anyone who is saved by grace through faith, they will prove the reality of their salvation by their willingness to risk it all for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is just making connections here. He's like, listen, don't go around saying I'm saved by grace, but then what you do is you hoard your life to yourself. Clinch yourself to yourself. Cling to yourself saying my rights, my privileges, me, not the Lord. I'm the Lord. He says there's a disconnect there. To say I have been saved by grace is to relinquish rights, relinquish privileges, relinquish desires, and say, I am following this crucified king, this resurrected king. Jesus says, he promises that when we do this, when we walk and live in this way, it leads to a reward this world can never, ever offer. And that reward is eternal life with Christ himself. See, when God saves us by his grace, he sets us free to follow him. And one of the ways we get set free is he changes our attitude toward death. Once saved by grace, we no longer begin to see death as loss. We genuinely begin to see that death is reward. God changes us to the point where we can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. But what? To die is gain. To die is gain. See, King Jesus has a way of changing the way we view death. Death in service for the king becomes reward. I think this is just what Jesus is driving at when he asks these two questions. Verse 36, 37, what's it profit a man to gain the whole world, forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And saying this, Jesus is just drawing us to see the upside down effect the gospel has on those who follow him. See, it's possible to put all of our time and energy into gaining the things of this world. Hello? The, the things of this world have a very strong magnetism to it, don't they? We strive to gain money. We strive to gain power. We strive to get sex. We strive to get respect. We strive for these things. We put all of our energy into gaining the temporary profit from these things. Because there is temporary profit from these things. That's why they're so alluring, yes? 
Because you can strive for them and you can get them and you can feel the temporary profit that comes from these things. But Jesus says if gaining the profit of the world happens at the cost of your soul because you love money, you love power, you love sex, you love respect more than you love the Christ, he says you've made a foolish decision. You have sacrificed that which is supremely valuable for that which is worthless by comparison. Ultimately, Jesus is just driving you and I to forsake the things of this world and to see King Jesus for who he is. He is the treasure above all treasures. You go in again into Matthew chapter 13. What do you find? Those parables about the goodness of the kingdom. The, tre- the pearl of great price. The treasure buried in a field. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, says a dude's walking through a field, trips and stumbles on this thing. He comes back and sees there's like this treasure chest buried in the ground. He's like, man, I've got to get this thing. So he goes back and lays out everything, sells everything that he has, counts the cost because he understands that all of this earthly stuff that I have is not compared to that treasure in that field. Sells everything and goes and buys this thing because this thing is worth it. It's the pearl of great price. It's recognizing that Jesus is the treasure above all treasures. He is the thing supremely valuable. And if we're to look at the things of the world, Jesus is challenging us to recognize that the things of this world pale in comparison to the magnificent, infinite, majestic value of Jesus who is the supreme treasure. Probably one of the most famous men who grasp this concept that those who follow Christ see death as reward and lived this idea out to its fullest extent was the man named Jim Elliot. In a journal entry for October 28, 1949, Elliot, who was a missionary to the Indians, the Amazonian jungle in Ecuador, expressed his belief in this journal entry that work dedicated to Jesus was more important than his life. And next to this journal entry, mimicking the words that we find here in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. Mimicking this idea in this journal entry, Elliot wrote probably one of his most famous phrases that people know him for. He wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool. You're not stupid. If you come to this conclusion that it is good and right for me to give away what I cannot keep, if that means I get to gain that which I cannot lose. And you see, it was this reality that drove Elliot and these four other missionaries deep into the Amazon jungle. They went with the hope of sharing the gospel to the Hirani Indians. But what they found was ultimately their death as they were martyred on the banks of the Kurray River, murdered by the very ones they came to evangelize. See, Elliot and these four missionaries, they got it. 
They fully understood that God's kingdom and God's king are the supreme treasure that could only ever satisfy our souls. And because they were gripped by this reality, it drove them to see death as reward. Now, all this sets us up for Jesus' last point, which is just this, verses 38 and chapter 9, verse 1, that a Christian is someone who's just not ashamed of the king. A Christian is someone who's not ashamed of the king. Look at what Jesus says there, verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me, whoever is ashamed of me, ashamed of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will I, as the Son of Man, also be ashamed when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. So he says to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God until it's come in power. So notice that again, Jesus just puts the bar or puts the cookies on the low shelf. The point's just really simple. He says, listen, if you are ashamed of Jesus now, ashamed of who he is, the Christ, no way am I ever going to identify with that. Ashamed of what he came to do, a suffering and dead guy? You worship a guy who died? It's ridiculous. There's never any way I'm going to identify with that. Ashamed of his suffering, ashamed of his death, ashamed of his resurrection? Jesus says then what we have is the guarantee that when King Jesus returns in the glory of his Father, he will be ashamed of us. But whoever is unashamed of Jesus now, there will be no shame for them then. You see, the kingdom of God, it's coming again with power. It's coming again with power. We're going to catch a glimpse of this power next week in the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember that? Jesus goes up, brings the three with him, and he transfigures right in front of them, getting a thumbnail scratch of the kind of power that is there in Christ. The disciples are going to get an even more of a glimpse of this power when Jesus resurrects from the dead. But the New Testament clearly teaches that there's coming a day when the heavens are going to peel back like a scroll, when the trumpet is going to sound, when King Jesus is going to descend. And what we find is that the kingdom of God is going to come again with power. And the question that Jesus seems to be asking us as we consider the realities of what it means for him to be the Christ who came to suffer and die is this question, what will you find from him on that day? What are you going to find from him? Shame? Because you were ashamed of him now? Or reward? Because you love to be identified with him now. Listen, the opposite of being ashamed of somebody is being proud of them. Admiring them. Not being embarrassed to be seen with them. And so Jesus says the path of discipleship is marked by an unashamed, wholehearted embrace of the king who suffered, died, and resurrected because this is what it costs to stand with him. So let's circle back around to that application question at the beginning. And let's ask ourselves how did we measure up to the things that Jesus has been saying? 
But we said that as we worked through Jesus' answers to this question, what is a Christian, we needed to be asking ourselves, does my Christianity line up with Jesus as here's his verses? If a Christian is someone who must die to self, if a Christian is someone who sees death as reward, if a Christian is someone who is not ashamed of the king, how does my life line up with what Jesus says here in these verses? Does my discipleship look like what Jesus says discipleship is supposed to look like? And my hope is that you've been checking your answers against the words of Christ. And if you've been doing this, then my guess is that this morning you fall into at least one of three categories. Option one is this. By God's grace, your life matches. You're standing here going, man, like, I, I see myself in this text in a good way. I'm not doing it perfectly. I stumble and I fumble every now and then. But for the most part, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit living within me, I look at Jesus' definition of what a Christian is, and I see that my life matches, not because I'm so phenomenal at living the Christian life, but because of the power of Christ in me, because of the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I see myself growing in what it means to die to self. I do truly see my, my eternal perspective on things as just totally upside down where I was was before Christ, living for the moment, living for the moment, living for the moment, not giving any regard to the things of the future. I've been turned upside down where I can now go the things of this world grow strangely dim. I see the goodness of living with Christ forever. I'm not ashamed of my King. You could be there in this place this morning, and if you're here, your life matches these things of Christ, then good. My encouragement for you is as we stand up and sing, man, like you need to be, you need to be responding with praise. But praise his name. It's God. That's manifest evidence that God is working in you, doing these things in you. The second option could be this. You might say you follow Jesus. You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a disciple, but as you were going through this, you're like, mercy sakes, man. My definition of what a Christian is, my definition of the marks of what I would say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower, I'm a disciple, because then you start filling in the blanks. You're like, the, my, my, my answer to the question, what is a Christian, is nothing like what Jesus says what the answer is. And if that's you here this morning, then my encouragement would be don't just sort of navel gaze and look in, but what you can do is lift your eyes to the one who says, but any who come after me, I will not turn away. Any who come to me with trusting faith that I am the one who can save because I have defeated Satan, sin, and death, you can come today and say this cross and the Christ that died upon this cross, I am looking to him, and I need him to change me, to save me. I need him to forgive my sins. And the promise is that you will be saved when you come and confess these things. And God will begin to work in you these very realities of what it looks like to die to self, see death as a reward, and to grow in what it looks like to not be ashamed of the king who gave his life for you. That's a possible place to be this morning. But the third one could be this. As you've been sitting here this morning, you have to admit, you know what, like I just have been seriously wrestling with this question in my life. Like I've just got to believe there's some of us here this morning been going, man, like I've been asking myself, what, what is a Christian? 
Like, I've got questions. I'm trying to figure this stuff out. I don't get it. I don't know. I've been wrestling with what does followership of the king look like? What does discipleship of the king look like? I've been asking myself this very question. What is a Christian? And after hearing these words this morning, I know this. I see. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who suffered and died and resurrected so that I can have eternal life. I have counted the cost. I see he is worth it. He is the treasure of the treasures of all this world. He is the one who is supremely valuable. I've counted the cost. I know what this means for my life. I know how this means I'm going to have to step into the sufferings of Jesus. I know this means that I might have to ultimately give my life as a reward for Jesus. I know this means I'm going to follow him. I know this means I'm going to have to deny my Myself. I know this means I'm going to have to take up my cross, but I've counted the cost and I'm in because Jesus is worth it. You could be here this morning going, I see this now. And my encouragement to you is this. The reason why you can say these things this morning is because God, by his grace, is divinely, sovereignly intervening in your world and opening your eyes to see these things. No one wakes up one day and goes, hmm, let me pull out my charts and my compass and my protractor and do a couple of formulas and see Jesus is the Christ. I'm obviously going to follow him. No one does that. But people respond to the Christ who suffered and died for them when God works in them mightily. And if you're here this morning going, man, I've asked myself the question, what is a Christian? And I now see Jesus as the Christ who suffered and died. I've counted the cost I'm in. Then you need to know this morning that God, by his grace, is working salvation in you this morning. The God who is sustaining the molecules of this earth is doing a work in you this morning. And that is cause for response. Cause for praise and worship. So here's how we're going to end this morning. I'm going to encourage you in this. Wherever you find yourself this morning in response to these sorts of things, option one, life matches, phenomenal. Option two, like my life just doesn't match. I need to respond with grace. Option three, man, I'm wrestling, I'm thinking, but this morning, I mean, I've counted the cost I'm in. Wherever you're at, respond with obedience to the Father because he is at whatever stage you're in, option one, two, or three, he is doing a work in you. Don't delay faithfully respond in obedience. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who speaks through your word. God, we're asking that you would do only what you can do this morning as you sovereignly work in the hearts and lives of men and women this morning. What is needed is for you to do a work, to open our eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ he suffered and died and the call to follow him is a call to step into his sufferings the king who must be crucified on a cross has followers who must die to self god this is not doable on our own but with the power of your son in us it is possible and i'm asking that you would do this work in us so that the world may see a true picture of what it means to follow Jesus as the world sees Jesus in us. Help us, Lord God, in these things, for your power, for your fame, and for your name. Amen.